All right, it's going. Sweet. Yeah, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I just read through Revelation on the plane ride home, but I don't know that I got a whole lot of understanding on it. It's a crazy book. Yeah, I should have brought my King James Bible over here to the kitchen table with me. You can grab it if you want to. We got time. Well, yeah, there's there's certainly a lot. I mean, you know, who who can understand that that book? First of all, you know, that's kind of uh, you know, there's extreme difficulty in just trying to understand it. Nonetheless, I thought I had some pretty significant breakthroughs this morning in terms of understanding Revelation and its place uh, in the rest of uh, scriptural eschatology. Yeah, well, tell me about it, man. I'd, I'd love to hear well, about it. It came from the, I mean, I don't know how much of my previous conversation with John you listened to. I'm at, I was listening to it right as you joined in, actually, because I'm, I'm at a one hour and 59 minutes, so. So did I, it get into the, it went in, See, it is stuff I've spoken with you before with respect you were to talking about the infinite and finite and the self self yeah, referential. Um, Did I talk about open theism as well as as axiology as well as value theory as well as why we why the good is good? I don't think you've gotten to that yet. I see. Well, the thing is these these things are all influencing my thoughts in regard to uh revelation um uh because the problem as i was explaining to john last night as i saw it before i had my uh little breakthrough um is that if even if you are allowed to interpret uh revelation universalistically the most you can seemingly get away with is um, a picture in which there is a separation between uh, sinners and saved, but in which um, all of the sinners have the opportunity at some point to turn and repent. Um, that's the most uh, universalist um, you can get with the text of Revelation. And that is different. That is a different picture than um, the universalist interpretation of Paul. And, and one can be excused for forming that kind of radically universalist interpretation of, of Paul because naively or prima facie, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's pretty serious stuff because it sounds like the scope of all is the same. And it sounds like the scope of all is, is all. Um, <clears throat> So the book of Revelation does seem to pose a problem for the universalist interpretation of Paul since it doesn't describe after the separation between the sinners and the saved, it doesn't describe any kind of final triumphant vision of God being all in all with the, the saved or the sinners voluntarily going, you know, and washing the robes and entering the perpetually open gates of the new Jerusalem. So that's kind of was that was sort of the starting place. Um, now let me try and see if I can remember 
the thoughts that occurred to me this morning. Um, I have long thought that the position known as ethical intellectualism, it's a philosophical position, uh, namely that no one knowingly does evil, that's one way of putting it. Another way of putting it in a theistic context might be to say that um, might might be to um, reference the identity of the of the good um, as God. It might be to to say that God is not some especially large and powerful agent, or if he is, he's also the good as such. Uh, and so the notion of, an, of a final separation from God understood as the good as such being anything other than bad for you is in the, in the limit that that's unintelligible. It has to be bad for you to be separated from God when God is understood as good as such, no matter how much actual subjectivity or indeterminacy or free will there may be in our metaphysical picture. And that is what I was trying to get at in my conversation with John, explaining how there is a subjectivity to the good as well as an objectivity, explaining how there is, um, on one level, say, on a fourth dimensional level, there is an Einsteinian parity between past, present, and future. Um, that is to say, past, present, and future exist all at once. And the present future is known to God, but the future future does not exist as something to be known or not known. It is not defined either X or not X. Um, that's what I was getting at in the conversation. So um, sketching a metaphysical picture in which if you will, the Einsteinian space-time block is continually updated um, uh, in, in toto um, along a higher, say, fifth dimensional uh, or, or fifth dimension of reality that is orthogonal to space-time. And it's on this kind of sort of quantum dimension that you can have your spooky quantum theoretic understanding of free will at the same time that you're allowing for a kind of foreknowledge, again, expressed as the present future is known to God, the future future is not. Because the future future does not exist as some static value which can be presently known or, or you know, not known. It, I don't know how much sense uh, any, any of this is making so far, but the idea is that, that it is possible, perhaps, to, to hold not only See, another way to put all what I'm saying is, is as follows. If revelation poses a problem for universalism, it may be that it only poses a problem for the kind of predestinarian, non-free will allowing universalism um, that says, you know, God just predestined everyone um, uh, in Christ from the foundation of, from before the foundation of the world, and that's the end of the story. You know, God is willing to save all. God is able to save all, as it were, perforce, or just, you know, through, through abnegating or abrogating their free will in Calvinistic uh, ways. Um, he's willing and he's able, therefore he does it. 
whereas maybe what scripture is really saying is something more ambitious, which is like, what does God desire? He desires that all will, all crucially, um, that all will freely choose him in the end. His sovereign will is that all will freely choose um, the good understood in the limit as what it is, namely God, in the end. And so there is here um, a holding together, both of absolute divine sovereignty, might say, predestination, and of open theism and free will, where to know to 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 observe reality is to change it, and to predict the future is perforce to change the future that one has predicted. Nonetheless. There is room here for a kind of determinism based on the nature of the good, where the particular events cannot be foreknown or predestined, but the, the, the pattern of their final shaking out is guaranteed to have some certain um, uh, outline uh, or generic form just because of the, the, the metaphysical nature of the good as God. The, the constraints that exist in this picture um, of, of, of freedom and indeterminacy. There are still constraints here, and there is still an ultimacy to ultimate reality and, and an absoluteness um, to the relativity of things. Uh, or the, the, the edict, if you will, that everything that is in God is God, everything that, that is in the infinite partakes of the nature of the infinite, that is something of an absolute edict. However, you know, it's like what it leads to is a kind of uh, perspectivality, um, a perspectival nature of things where because it's infinite, it can be seen as both what it is and um, the opposite from different vantage points. Um, and um, so, the point here being that perhaps revelation um, in its um, seeming when at least when interpreted universalistically and we can talk about perhaps you know how valid it is to, to interpret it along those lines Revel revelation has this picture um, and i'm following brad jerzak here a lot revelation offers this picture of the eschaton where um, everyone has freedom to repent and the gates of the new Jerusalem are forever open, but it doesn't come down and say either yes or no um, uh, in answer to the, the question of the fate of uh, all the all those who are outside the gates. So in other words, it would even if interpreted universalistically, it's, stress, it's stressing the open theism half of the equation. And I would argue that the letters of Paul are stressing the, uh, the, the predestinarian or the sovereignty half of the equation, but that there is room for holding both of these together. However much subjectivity there may be in the good understood as the kind of um, infinite soul's dialectical pursuit of itself uh, as the infinite as its highest notion of the good, which in the limit is God, 
um, you know, however much subjectivity there may be in that, there's also an objectivity, um, which dictates that however far rational natures initially deviate from the, if you will, the gravitational pull of, of God, they always have to bend back. Um, and, um, you know, like the, the arc that they describe cannot necessarily be predicted in advance, but in terms of its exact outline, but nonetheless, um, uh, it is subject to some kind of like transcendent constraints. Um, so again, I don't know how good a job I may have done on any of this, but, but that, that was, um, that was what was occurring to me this morning. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. Um, I'm not sure where to go from there. Um, yeah, you brought up quite a quite a few things. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't read the book that you guys were talking about, so I'm not quite sure on all the ideas of Revelation uh, and the whole universalistic uh, argument to it. Um, I guess there's certain verses in there that I run into problems with maybe as well with trying to balance the idea of universalism. And I've, I've never like really looked, like I've told you before, I'm not well studied. I haven't, I mostly just read the scriptures and maybe a few books here and there, but, um, you brought up one thing and I'm not sure how relevant this is to your whole overall idea that you were getting at, but you mentioned the, the, present future can be known but the future future is not known like not even to god that's something i haven't really heard people say before but um is that idea um has is that grown out of the concept of free will or something like that from what it you just understand? occurred to me while i was riding a bus um, okay because mostly because i'm crazy oh okay so it's and, it's and your idea sort of kind of at least okay. the expression of it yeah yeah you know the thing is my add is so bad that i can't read other people but i've been doing philosophy so long you know not necessarily well but there's a certain simplicity um with which ideas now suggest themselves to me that wasn't the case when i was younger i see yeah but it, i mean with that notion of a present future and a future future uh, suggests is what I was talking about earlier, an idea of a meta time, a time over which lower forms of time are parameterized, generated. This is very Chris Langan type stuff. Um, you know, if there's a higher uh, dimension along which the space-time block is itself updated and, you know, renewed, behold, I am making all things new just sort of the real revelation, that that's the real eschatological message of revelation. Not that all are saved or some are damned. Just behold, I'm making all things new. And it's, it, it leaves that sort of ultimate fate open and it leaves the hope of universal restoration as a kind of transcendent ideal or limit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, again, how ambitious is God? Yeah. If he were playing for low stakes, he would say, well, you know, I just, I can't, I'm not able, I'm not able to secure the outcome of everyone's 
freely choosing um, uh, my goodness uh, or myself. Mm-hmm. So I'll just pre I'll predestine that and call it a day. Or, you know, I'm 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 not able to. Uh, you know, that you know, there's the other possibility of they have to have free will, but you know that that means perforce that some of them won't choose me. Uh-huh. Um, and there's something about the nature of the good as such where somehow one can make a fully informed choice away from, it. and it somehow really can be good for them in the final analysis or judgment um, not to choose me. There's just a certain subjectivity there which means that some will never choose me of their own free will, and that won't even be a bad thing or something to mourn. Um, you know, it's just sort of the Armenian picture, or it can sometimes be the idea that the gates of hell are locked on the inside it seems to imply that those within hell are able to exist in some kind of life or existence apart from God who is the source of all life and existence. Um, but um, what I'm saying is, you know, what if the stakes God, are, God is playing for is like my will is that all will freely choose me with a truly robust kind of free will and not some kind of lame compatibilist kind. I mean, even the spooky indeterminate quantum kind. Um, uh, and that they will all freely choose me, every one. That how big of a winner would God be in that case? Yeah. It's the, it's the highest possible stakes and the biggest possible win. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, it um, so What I'm getting at is, 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 is what, if, what if the universal restoration aimed at in scriptures of that kind? And so two of the, you know, one eschatological book um, emphasizes the, the kind of um, sovereignty or predestinarian side of the equation, as I said before, and the other emphasizes the kind of dynamic or open theistic end of the equation out. That is all assuming that, you know, revelation even lends itself to this kind of dynamic or open theist uh, conception of mm-hmm. God and time or meta time. Um, and, uh, you know, that it, from reading Gerzak, I kind of got the idea that it does. And then it led me to form some more specific thoughts on revelation's interpretation. Um, uh, but uh, I haven't gone into that yet. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I'm not sure if this, like, I, I don't know if this is just over, oversimplifying it or if I'm not, if, I, if I'm tracking completely, but um, I don't know if you guys in your video, if you eventually get into it or not, but do you talk about forgiveness at all? Because I know I keep going on about this a lot. But to me that, uh, when that's like kind of the foundational thing, it seems to uh, all those ideas seem to like that you're talking about seem to work uh, perfectly. Like you talked about uh, going out and coming back in, it's like um, 
it's, it's like a cycle. And, and the, the refrain in scripture over and over is his mercy endures forever, his mercy endures forever. And I kept, I run into problems with people talking about this sometimes. And I think it's just because uh, it's mostly semantics, I think. Um, and when I was talking to my mom about it recently, she said a lot of Christians, I, she said, I think a lot of Christians don't have your same uh, idea of mercy. They think mercy is, is, is something else because I tend to see it as just kind of unconditional love which is the same thing. It's like forgiveness, um, which is uh, the free will you're talking about. The self-choosing um, is what would be involved in that. And so you like, in creation, you let something have its own identity by giving it the free will. And then, and you brought up the prodigal son story. I think that's a great example. He's basically born into his father's house. He's, that's another thing I run into is the word predestined. I think I just, I still haven't been able to fix my mind, like to understand other people's conception of it, but I know I don't, I don't necessarily perceive it the same way. Because in that story, I would say the son is predestined to be like his father, to inherit his father's house. And then he uh, deserts his destiny. Like, I mean, I, we have that in movies all the time. Like, you but like go away from your destiny. You're destined to be this king and you run away from it. You run away from your destiny. So I kind of see it the same thing. You can do that in free will. And then it's when you encounter that, that mercy or that forgiveness, that's what pulls you back. And so that's the, that's what's holding all things together. And that's what's making all things new. Behold, I make all things new. And that's what's, um, uh, bleeds over into the, I mean, it's weird because it's happening now. And so it's like, well, will the new heavens and the new earth be any different? And I think it will be, but I think it's all around, to me, it seems like it's always all around that idea of his mercy uh, enduring forever. And, um, and even with the, the God knowing thing too, I've, I've mentioned that to my sister Natalie once, and she's probably the only one I mentioned it to is just, yeah, because I like to play devil advocate too. And I, I'm, sure that, I'm sure there's somewhere in scripture where it says that God is all knowing, but I know it says he's all powerful in Revelation but I don't know where exactly it says he's all knowing. I know it says he spoke the end from the beginning. And so it's like, you might not, like you mentioned, you might, you might not know all the facts and all the specific details, but he knows the outcome because it's like, here's the only outcome is I loved you it's, at it's the even, first. It's even stronger than that, where every fact that exists as a fact to be known or not known, he knows, but there is also, so in other words, he knows your future. Uh -huh. But on a higher level of reality, there's also God's future, which okay, I think it, it does not exist. As it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't exist in this static or logically binary fashion. Yeah, where it can, where, where it can, intelligibly be foreknown. Um, it's not in the same nature as um, some future eventuality that is going to befall you in which God knows of right now. However, um, ultimately, your future and mine are, um, theoretically, uh, updated and, and parameterized on this higher dimension um, of God's future. Um, so, and in my podcast, I got into, I've gotten into speculative ideas 
about the the role that we co-creators may play in that. Um, however, I'm hearing I'm hearing um, Benjamin cry, and I told you I might have to um, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, walk yeah. him up and down. Okay, you yeah. can pause the recording if you want, and then this will give me a chance to get my Bible for us when we get into um, Revelation. Okay, yeah. Just um, shoot me. I'll keep my phone on me and send me a message on Discord or something when you're ready to come back. See that right now. Okay. So where we left off was um, I interrupted you uh, regarding the, the nature of God's foreknowledge and God's future, so to speak. Um, and I was insisting that um, there's a way in which um, what God does not know, um, um, it, it, it's, it's not like it, it exists in some knowable fashion where someone could know it, but, you know, uh, nobody happens to know it, not even God. It's more of a category error to assume that um, what is not defined, what is neither X nor not X, exists as some static value to be known or not known at all. So an example would be, an example of what I'm not talking about would be Diodorus Cronus, the Greek philosopher who said that um, the outcome of some hypothetical sea battle um, uh, with Athens and its neighbor, um, even though no one knows the outcome, it is nevertheless true now that either Athens will win or it will lose. Um, so he's insisting on, the, on a kind of determinacy um, of future events, that, they, that the future exists now already. We just don't happen to know what it is. Versus this more sort of quantum idea where um, that outcome toward which one is looking ahead is genuinely undefined um and that's the only way um that i i know to express it i might be repeating myself a little bit um but that's that's more so what i'm talking about i'm not talking about some future that an agent could know it but god happens not to know it i'm talking about you know something of a different um order okay um <laughs> All right, I'm not quite sure. I, I'm trying to follow that. Um, so you're saying, would like with the the example of Athens, God would be the um, that the future event is is just kind of out there in this heavenly realm, and we don't know, like us as finite beings, we don't know it. But then God still knows it. I'm I'm not I'm not sure I'm tracking really. I'm sorry. With, with the exact idea you're getting at with that. Because it says, uh, I guess what I was thinking of more when I mentioned it was that um, in when I was trying to play devil's, devil's advocate with myself was just, I was thinking, I've always heard God is all-knowing. He knows everything, every single detail, all these things. Um, and then I was just like, well, is that in scripture? Like, have I actually... Um, why is it that that's just assumed, which it's, it's a good assumption. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't think that, 
But then I was thinking if there are some Kabbalists who think that, in a sense, God sacrificed his foreknowledge so that humankind could have free will. Seeing an incompatibility between divine foreknowledge and human free will. um, I see. The idea being that if God knows everything, that somehow almost forces you um, to act in a certain way. Or even if it doesn't force you, it nonetheless, in a sense, means that you do not have the ability to act otherwise, which is seen as an essential ingredient of free will. And so faced with that dichotomy, the the Kabbalists um, concluded that God, as it were, sacrificed his own foreknowledge in order to enable human free will much in a a similar way as he um, withdrew um, in order that limited being could exist. Um, I have thoughts on that metaphysically. I'm not you know, in full agreement, but nonetheless, these are evocative ideas. Yeah. Okay. Um, I see what you're saying. I think that's kind of the idea I was like toying with in my head, something along those lines of just like, he knows, yeah, he knows the end from the beginning. So kind of, um, he knows how the story ends. He wrote the beginning and he wrote the end, but all the pieces in the middle, it's like you come to this uh, final conclusion in everyone's life too. It's like, and like I was mentioning with forgiveness, it, if you find yourself outside of that, there's no more life there. So it's kind of not necessarily that you're forced into that, but you kind of only have one hope, you know, it's like, that's, if you mess up, you only have one. uh, Well, forgiveness, forgiveness and mercy are the action or they're the verb. They're the dynamic of love and love in turn is the dynamic that, um, sort of the principle that allows the infinite to exist as itself. It allows the infinite to be infinite. Mm-hmm. Something about love in terms of the, its perpetual joining of the self and other, the finite self or predicate with its, um, with its um, sort of undefined complement um, uh, or even defined complement. But the point is when they're united, that's, that's, that's like the the approximation, maybe even the arrival at um, in, infinity. Um, um, and what did I say? Say I wrote this down somewhere. I was was saying that um, I re- I asked myself if scripture has no plain or fixed or ultimate meaning, then can it just become anything, even its opposite? And some sense that. I mean, things are not closed off to the possibility of becoming their opposites, but they can't just become anything. Everything is updated according uh, to love. Love is the selection principle of the infinite. Love is the infinite. Um, everything um, is perspectival. That doesn't make everything arbitrary. That's what my friend Jed says. And so then in the next line I wrote, this gets into what Jason was saying. Truth is on the mercy seat. What is the awful the awful, terrible, uh, true meaning of this text. Take, take the, 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 the seemingly unredeemable badness of things as they're described here, and then ask what does mercy slash love slash forgiveness do? What does it do to transform these things? You know, behold, I'm making all things new. In order to be, um, in order to be what it is, the 
you know, the, the, the infinite has to have a certain way of uh, renewing or transforming or reviving itself. It follows a characteristic pattern or Tao. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I definitely don't want to get off base from like everything you're saying. So it seems to be, is this all kind of related to what you're getting at with the, the, what you're talking about, the, the text of Revelation and the, the message of it? What, I, what I just said was related to like principles of hermeneutics. That was more so the beginning of the conversation with John. Didn't have a time, chance to get in. Uh, get into your uh, your ideas then, or at least it didn't occur to me. But when I was writing down the ideas um, that I discussed in my conversation with John, I was writing down um, what I felt was the relationship between my ideas on hermeneutics and, and yours. Um, is you know the way that you interpret scripture is truth is on the mercy seat. What is highest has to sit on the seat of mercy. This means that there is a certain action or dynamic or verb that is performed um, when when one encounters you know some situation as a starting point and. It can be arbitrarily awful or, or seemingly unredeemable. And, and love empties itself and, and goes wholly into the otherness. It goes into the darkness and it goes into the depth. Uh, it, it goes into death. And then um, behold, um, all things are made new as a result. And this is the kind of the only reigning principle in a in a reality that is open and dynamic where to predict the future is to change it in the very act of predicting it which interestingly may be a reason why prophecies are often wrong um at least the negative ones um and um the only things that are guaranteed are those promises that are rooted in love where the analogy is to something like um um, if there is a grandparent who has the option to give his life for um, his grandchild, as long as that option exists, as long as he is truly able, he will always do so. Even though he has free will, even though he has the ability to do otherwise, he will never do otherwise. And that's not contrary to his free will. It's just showing the shape of his heart. Yeah. And in scripture, God makes certain promises that are that you can take to the bank because the only thing that influences whether or not it will happen is whether god's love is of sufficient depth so in other words like jesus did he have to go to the cross no didn't have to um in this possible world he did is there another possible world i mean like now imagine some other circumstance where again he has the option to go to the cross but he doesn't have to does he choose not to no he never chooses not to, but that doesn't run contrary to his free will. That's just saying that it doesn't mean he lacks free will. It's just saying that his love is such that he will never not give himself. Um, 
And so this is the only certainty on which one can bank in a reality that is as open and dynamic as it possibly you know, seems to be. That it's, it's sort of a quantum. Um, uh, there's some, some kind of illustration I was gonna use for that and I forgot, but, um, but I don't know if this is making some kind of sense because maybe he didn't get to that point in the conversation where John Van Veen was talking about uh, Greg Boyd and how he didn't understand how on Greg Boyd's open theist picture of things, he could have this notion that certain things are bound to eventuate nonetheless with, with certainty. And again, that gets more into, perhaps you can't know the particulars, but, but the form, the, out, the outline that is knowable in the sense that whatever it takes, God is all in. Whatever it takes to bring redemption about, he will do it. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, God is also all powerful such that, you know, he always has the option to, to bring about redemption. It will be at a terrible price to himself, but he will pay it. This is bringing me to Isaiah 46. I have to read it because I love that verse so much. Yeah. With your indulgence. Oh, yeah, definitely read it. I'm always done. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. And um, it makes me think of um, when Jesus says, Father, he's, before he's going to go to the cross, he says, glorify your name. And on one level, it's like how heartless and self, and God says, I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. And on one level, how heartless and selfish is God that, that, he, that he, all he's thinking of is his own glory when Jesus is about to suffer this terrible death. But the kind of, I told you about that experience I had when I was younger, that was like, it was like, it was the come to Jesus moment, but it didn't have any propositional content about God or Jesus. Um, which in a way was such a little thing that happened that in turn makes me think of Jesus statement that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Um, it starts with something just, you know, immeasurably small, but, you know, it changed the course of the rest of my life. And what I learned, the, the interpretation of that experience that I developed later is that the God, yes, Calvinistically speaking, God is concerned with his glory, but the glory of God is the selflessness of his love. Mm -hmm. That you can see creation itself, the understanding of all the awful sin that it would entail, all the evil, all the suffering, which God would have to experience along with his creatures and co-suffer with them sort of in the aggregate um god god experienced as a god experienced what what the initial moment of creation if one can speak of it as a kind of ego death yeah that reminds god me go ahead oh no sorry this is the verse you the stuff you just said it's hebrews 2 9 it says that we see jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So just kind of like you're saying, the glory is his ego death. In Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, it says, as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. In 2 Corinthians, it says, we all died with Christ. Mm -hmm. 
that's amazing when you interpret the scope to include like all of humanity and also every creature, the whole cosmos died with Christ. That, that was in the beginning. The glory of God is the selflessness of his love. In the, I, I have glorified my name, meaning to say that I have, I have borne all this upon myself. Yeah. And I will glorify it again. When you voluntarily go to that cross, I will be there with you. I will be in, I will be, it says God, where, did, where does it say that in Corinthians? Is it two, God was in Jesus? Yeah, 2 chapter 9. I mean, sorry, chapter 2, verse 9. Yeah. Bust it out. Okay, yeah, I'll read it again. Because uh, it's so good, it has to be read. It's yeah. already... um, let's see. It's talking about Jesus being exalted over the, the angels and everything. Um, I'll read the first part. It says, um, I'll just start at 5, for he was... For he was not, uh, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, "What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over all the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death." crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. And then it says this for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So I think that last part I read is kind of getting at what you're talking about as well as. Um, even well, it, it's not the verse I had in mind. I'm glad okay, you read sorry. it. Because I'm sure it, I'm sure it bears in an even deeper way than I currently realize. But um, what I was thinking of was, um, it is Second Corinthians five nineteen. Okay. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not uh, not uh, counting um, our trespasses against us. Uh, is this not counting people's sins against them? And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So in other words, it means that the, the kind of the, the maverick way that I interpret God's statement that I have glorified my name, will glorify it again, is in some sense like that what the divine nature has already died in order that creation might be. And when you, the, when, when you die in your human nature, I will touch all the way to the bottom. And I will be in you, not counting the sins of the world against them, but, but reconciling the world to myself in you. I will be in you even when you feel yourself farthest from me. It is, it's, it's, it's an incredibly powerful um, statement as I, as I now understand it. Yeah. And yeah, it has it to do, I would say, with the election of absolutely everyone in the blood of the slaughtered lamb from before the foundation of the world. And that is, that is, as it were, that's predestined. Mm -hmm. That's grace. God died for you when you were yet his enemy. Yeah. Um, and that, that is true simultaneously while we have free will. Yeah. That's this, like everything you just said. And I think all of that works. Like, I guess, I think the right term is practically, uh, it works on the smallest level 
a micro to macro level sort of thing. Um, and that's why that's the reason I think I personally lean towards a universalist idea is because of that, that verse. He's rec- the verse you read in Corinthians, he reconciles the world to himself, not imputing their sins against them. So that works the way God does it with Christ. It works the same way that we do it to our brothers. He died for us while we were yet enemies. And then he tells us to love your neighbor, to love your enemy. He tells us to do the same thing. And so uh, it's, it's not so much the scriptures where it says the word all that, I, that are personally compelling for me. I know they are for a lot of people, but it's more that, that weird sort of pattern of forgiveness that we see in Christ that is supposed to like play out in each one of us to where it's supposed to. Uh, and I keep praying for it to just keep growing in me to continually uh, that, that self-sacrificial love you're talking about that, that gives forgiveness um, that reconciles that love. I pray will grow in me to the where, to where Paul says I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my brethren in the flesh, that that love will also like, like you mentioned, it reaches down to the very bottom and I want my love to do the same. And so I think that's what causes me to believe in a universalist uh, viewpoint, because I'm like, I don't see how heaven can exist without ultimate reconciliation if I'm told to love my enemy, because I'm like, because your enemy, it's, that seems like perspective. Like my enemy is just my enemy because like, uh, because it's my own perspective. And then once I start to love him a little more, then he be, might become my neighbor. Then he becomes my brother. Then he becomes, you know, it's just like he's drawing. There, there, are, two, there are two things here. You know, David Bentley Hart said, if, if, um, if it's possible that you have to, um, he uses the word, he uses the word proleptically. He says, if in your heart you have to, abandon your neighbor to the possible fate um, of being damned forever. That, that, that means that there's some level on which you can't love him as yourself. If you can open your mind just even to the possibility that you would have to be okay with his being damned forever. If you can't, if you could ever even possibly be okay with that, you can't love your neighbor as yourself. And on the other side, and then it makes the, he said, the ethos of the kingdom of God becomes the same as the ethos of the kingdom of hell, namely every man for himself. If, if, if we allow ourselves to proleptically or abandon, abandon our neighbor to that fate in our heart in advance. Yeah. Um, uh, and then on the other side, George MacDonald said, you know, oh Christ, if, if I was taught of you, then wouldn't I go? Um, even if there was only one last lonely soul in hell, wouldn't I go there? Uh, to be with him, um, uh, you know, not in spite of your teachings, but 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 because of them, and that's you know that's what led him in his reflections to believe that that Judas must have been reconciled to Jesus. Although McDonald closes by saying, "I say not how." Um, um, so yeah, there. I mean, there's very serious stuff there. Or as I was reading in um. Uh, her gates will never be shut by Brad Jerzak. Um, he talks about his vision, which is it's, just, it's an amazing vision. 
um, of the, the parched and barren lands outside the New Jerusalem being those of Gehenna, the kind of the, the land of, of smoking refuse. Um, and that the souls outside are, 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 are parched and, and um, you know, they've, they've given up all hope as in the uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, it, where uh, the rich man has has a thirst which is is um, burning his his throat, and there is no hope. There is no hope of of anyone bringing him relief. And then, um, Jerzak imagines the living waters of the New Jerusalem overflowing their banks, and flowing out of the the gates of the New Jerusalem, and into the Valley of Gehenna, um, and um, uh, you know, it inevitably, um, you know, over overflowing their banks and quenching the thirst of those um, who, who um, you know, uh, have repented and, and who, who in the end desire to be with God, and who must uh, desire to be with God, given God's nature, you know, given that God is the good as such. There isn't anything that it can mean for someone to be eternally separated from the good as such, and it be a good thing for them, which means that there's no, there's no way one can knowingly choose that fate for oneself. Any choice of that fate has to be a choice made in ignorance, if God is the good as such. Um, and so even if the text of Revelation doesn't impinge on human freedom in such a way as to um, say that this will happen. You know, Jerzak finds himself imagining that it will. And what's an exceptionally powerful and beautiful vision that he, that he writes, writes about in the book. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, certainly certainly the idea of the idea of god commanding us to forgive our enemies and then never forgiving his own enemies is certainly strange the only alternative one is left with is that the gates of hell are locked from the inside but again if god is not merely some especially large and powerful agent but is rather or is also the good as such um one cannot imagine uh, uh, souls making some kind of informed choice, uh, fully informed choice uh, to eternally separate themselves from God understood as the, the good as such. Um, uh, so anyway. Um, uh, no, I think that, I think you, when you brought that up to me the first time of the, a soul actually making a, a fully informed choice. Um, that was really compelling to me because I I thought before, because when I get into the text of Revelation where it talks about um, death and hell giving up their dead to be judged according to their works, um, that usually is brought up to me um, when I talk about universalism and stuff because then it talks about then whoever's not found in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire where that kind of looks like 
annihilation to me or something like that. But then my thought is, my thought previously was always that, um, and it probably still is, is that uh, the only people who aren't forgiven are those who reject forgiveness. So the people that have it right there in their face of here, you're allowed, you're offered repentance to forgiveness. This is your, this is, do you want forgiveness? Um, and then they say, no, I don't need that. I'm good on my own. I don't need a savior. I don't need forgiveness. I don't, I'll just do it on my own. Then those are the people that are so hardened, they would be thrown into the lake of fire or something like that. But then right. like, that, like, that is, that is the, that is the, uh, the, what do they call that? Unforgivable sin, which is, which is unforgiveness itself. That's what I understand it as, but I don't think I would or, never or, taught that. But also, but also unrepentance interest. Mm, yeah so when you're yeah, neither so. willing to free it, it's somehow it's almost the same thing the unwillingness yeah. to forgive and the unwillingness to repent yeah and i think that's why christ is so offensive too because it's he's just his existence says you need a savior um but it's uh but that um but then when you brought up yeah the point of um how how well are we really informed And Christ looks at them and says their children, they don't know what they're doing. It's like, even for someone to reject forgiveness at that point, they could, they're not God, they're not all knowing. So they can't really be held to that standard. But then at the same point, it's like, are they declaring themselves God in a way? I don't really know. And yeah, it's a good point that when he's going to the cross, he isn't saying uh, ignorance is no excuse. He's actually saying the opposite. He's saying, forgive them. They know not what they do. And, um, you know, one could say, well, suppose it's possible to be an illusion forever. And so even though, no, their, their refusal to um, uh, repent and, and rejoin the God uh, in whom they can have their only happiness, um, even though that's not a fully informed choice, just the grim, unfortunate nature of reality is, is that some illusions can last forever. But I would ask, by way of response, it, if an illusion could last forever, how would it ever be distinguishable from the truth? So, in other words, the, the reason the truth is true is that it's eternal. And nothing false can enjoy the same status as the truth. Everything false must at some point be disproven. Um, uh, that's that's sort of um, that's that's something that I think has to be um, seriously grappled with um, in this uh, kind of space of ideas. Yeah, can you say that one more time? I need to I need to chew on that a little more. Everything. Yeah, well, I I was I was telling Howard Storm. I, I was saying, uh, I said if. If, if an illusion could last forever, how would it be distinguishable from the truth? Mm-hmm. The reason the truth is true is that it lasts forever. It does not ever break or die. Now, if, now if falsehood or illusion could also enjoy the same eternal status, it would be similar to saying one could be made happy forever serving mammon. No, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Only God makes you happy forever. Um, 
Similarly, only the truth endures forever. Everything false must at some point die and be subject to um, disproof. Mm. Else there would be no criterion distinguishing it from the true truth. Yeah. I'm definitely going to have to chew on that one a lot. Because you said the truth endures forever. And like the scripture says, his mercy endures forever. And that makes me think back to, I think I mentioned you to you before. And I don't think I had really said it out loud before. And it kind of <laughs> stuck with, it's one of those things you say. And then afterward, you're like, oh, I, it kind of sticks with, with you more. And you're like, I'm kind of glad I actually vocalized that. But it was when Pilate asked him what's truth. And then he says, I find no fault in him at all. And so there's this, I think there's some weird connection there of like the, that the reckon, like you mentioned, the reconciling the world to himself, the um, not imputing their trespasses among them, not finding fault in them, the mercy enduring forever. And that's, that's like the ultimate, the idea of the truth being on the mercy seat. Uh, My friends are now fond of saying that to know all is to forgive all. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus, Pilate asks him, what is truth? And Jesus holds silent, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He allows Pilate to answer his own question yeah. with the true answer. Yeah. Which is, in effect, that to, 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 to know all is to forgive all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I find that, I think that's what I've been getting at. I, I mentioned recently uh, to my friend Mitch, and I've said it to other people before, but I don't say it often, um, but it's that I, I kind of personally don't really care um, and it's probably a bad thing to say. I'm sure it is. But I'm like, I don't really care what God people worship as long as he's sitting on the mercy seat. So I don't necessarily care what people's highest good is, um, what their highest. We're breaking good. up just a tiny bit. Oh. We're going to have to restart. It was something you were saying to Mitch. Yeah. Let me just go inside really quick. It's starting to rain a little bit. So maybe that's uh, why. Is it a little better in here? Is it a little better? I I think so. I think things are good. Okay. All right. Hold on one second. Let me make sure I got everything. Nothing. All right. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I was saying how um, I don't, like, I don't necessarily, like, it seems like everybody has a, I was telling him the statement I make is I don't necessarily care who your God is, as long as he's sitting on the mercy seat. And like I was saying, that's probably not necessarily a good statement to make. No, uh, no, it's, it's, no, it's exactly correct. Because there's only one God that sits on the mercy seat. Yeah. Okay. Just like, just like in, in, um, uh, the last battle, um, the the uh, the knight Emmeth, who's who served the false god Tash his entire life, um, but he served him faithfully and to the self sacrificial limit. Greater love hath no man. He encounters Aslan, and he thinks, "Oh no!" It turns out Aslan is the judge. Now I'm really screwed because I served Tash my whole life. And Aslan basically tells him, if you were able to keep the vow, then it is only by me that you can have truly sworn. And if you were able to give your life, um, it, it's only through me that you can do that. 
Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Don't think that you can. You you can. You can be any of these things that I am without without you know also being in me, so to speak. Just because of these this this rigid claim of identity. Yeah. Um, that is implicit in a statement like "I am the truth, the way, and the life." And then Ameth asks. You know, is it therefore the case that all roads lead to you? And he said, said no, because, um, uh, you know, basically, you know, you know, he is, Tash is of, you know, one kind of nature and I'm of another kind uh, or the other kind, something like that. So it it isn't, it isn't perforce to say that all roads lead there unless one is sort of kind of, um, smuggling in this implicit premise that which i think is correct that um the ultimate movement um of every uh you know mind is 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 toward agape because every false value keeps breaking until you get to agape Mm-hmm. The one value that doesn't break and is truly eternal. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, what one way that it's been put, I don't know if everyone would like this, that Jesus is the way that is open to other ways. How I would see it is that there are many roads up the mountain. They all only go part way up the mountain, except one, mm-hmm. which goes all the way to the top. And all of the others converge on that one. Yeah. Yeah, and like the like the value system, there's only the there's only one that holds the values together too. Because when I say like it doesn't really bother me who your God is, is because I feel like so many different people have a different. Uh, they're going up the mountain to this highest good, and we all they're all taking different routes because we all have a different highest good. Like that seems to be. I don't. I don't necessarily. I have to be careful with my words here. Um, I don't, I don't want to say it's like subjective or like the truth is subjective or anything, but it seems like, you know, someone could say that uh, being honest is the best thing. That's their highest value. That's their greatest aim. That's their telos. Well, it's like, you're not going to reach that unless that's sitting on the mercy seat because you're never going to live up to that. And then you'll also damn others that don't live up to your standard of honesty or even with love. Like you've, you've seen people do that with love. They Unless you're like, willing to die to yourself which is both to repent and to forgive as exactly. the occasion requires. Yeah, exactly. Like C.S. Lewis is... said that courage is the form of every virtue at the testing point. Mm-hmm. If you believe in honesty, fair enough, but you better have the courage to die for it when the time comes and it will come. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got to get that's... on the cross. Yeah. It's like your, your highest good, your King, your whatever, your God that you're worshiping, that you're trying to reach. Like it could even be love, but if love is not willing to die of itself, like, then like even people i've met people that have done that where they it's like everybody needs to love everybody needs to be more loving and then they condemn people that they don't deem are loving enough and and it's like well you're not loving enough either like none of us are so it's like even love has to be on that mercy seat even love has to get on the cross it's like that high whatever your king is it's like we're all going up the mountain and then you meet your king and it's like it's like that's where christ is it's like he takes that I think that's what Peugeot talks about too. It's like this final leap where it's like the king, now there's the king and he makes the leap to becoming the martyr. 
it's like the second leap off the mountain into the heavens or something and that's what being the martyr is it's the dying the dying to yourself like you're talking about and having your king die for you at the same time um so i don't know where i don't know how all this is related to revelation i feel like it all maps on to the the new heavens and the new earth but the initial tangent that we went off on was the question of whether it is possible to make a fully informed choice away from god what is it that distinguishes truth from illusion, the false value from the yeah. true um, agape? Um, and um, um, yeah, I mean, Revelation, I mean, the question remains whether it can be interpreted in a way um, that allows, so this is another question that I've been you know, pondering on in connection with Revelation is um you know basically whether whether you can um interpret it in a way where um there is this invitation that is extended to um the the dogs and the magicians and the fornicators and the damned outside the city um because that is consistently how um, universalist interpreters interpret revelation but the harder i try i mean the more i try the harder it becomes to see that invitation um, as extending to the damned outside the city as opposed to whom I think it really goes to, namely John's audience, John's readers. Um, and but you know that that raises questions of of interpretation, you know, and you know, something that revelation always requires you to ask is, Am I seeing this book as fulfilled in the future or fulfilled in the past or somehow all at once? And the, the sort of, you know, revelation way of interpreting revelation would be to read it as a book, which is about what was and what is and what is to come. Describing perennial realities and being true preteristically, futuristically and perennially um, all at the same time, I think. And, um, you know, because when you get to that, see what I'm talking about with respect to this invitation, <clears throat> maybe I should read it just so that people will know what I'm talking about. Um, Got to go over here too. It's 21.8, right? Um, it's at Revelation 22. Basically, oh. the spirit takes John up to a great and high mountain. And from that mountain, he sees the new Jerusalem come down, which is this gigantic cube. It's like 15,000 miles tall, wide, and uh, deep, which like, as far as I can tell, you know, the earth is only like, um, yeah, I mean, it's only 25,000 miles around, right? I mean, it's, it's can still fit on the earth, but uh, it's, it's, um, Anyway, it's yeah. going to be really big. You might do certain things to your rotation, but of course, it's not a literal um, uh, physical cube. Um, yeah. But he sees the cube comes down, the angels flying around, measuring it. And then at some point, it also says that the angel through whom Jesus speaks, the, you know, the, the book of Revelation, um, he, he shows John 
the tree of life, which is in the New Jerusalem. And the implication there seems to be that John gets taken into the New Jerusalem. However, I don't know if it actually says that he is. But um, one has the image of John and the angel inside the New Jerusalem. Um, by the time that, um, uh, you know, Revelation 22, 7, or, um, uh, where is it? Yeah, Re Revelation 22, 6 um, is happening. Um, and he said unto me, namely the angel through whom Jesus is speaking, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thou, thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I and, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Okay, so this is the invitation. And a lot of the universalist interpreters interpret this um, invitation as extending to um, the dogs outside the city. Now, why do they do that? Because they imagine those only two groups of people to whom the angel could be speaking, namely um, the, uh, the saved inside the city or the sinners without. And he's not issuing the invitation to those who are already saved. Therefore, he's inviting those who are outside uh, to come in and, and drink. Um, there's a number of things going on. First of all, to whom is this invitation really going? Because it might be that um, the invitation is being given um, to John and by extension, or it's being given to John in order uh, for it to extend to his listeners or his readers. That's the way I read it. Because it seems strange to imagine that at this point, the angel is turning to interact with those inside the vision. It doesn't seem like he's ever really spoken uh, uh, words to them before, words that we ourselves also read. Um, the, the audience of the book has always been the, the churches, uh, like the seven churches um, to whom the, the revelation goes and it comes through John. Um, and I imagine that at that point, 
the message is still being given um, to John so that it might reach his audience. Um, that being said, perhaps one can um, read in a kind of fuller meaning that's not incompatible with the text of Revelation, um, which says that um, Jesus is offering that invitation um, as well to the damned outside the city. Maybe, but here's another thing that's interesting about, about the, um, the invitation. You would have to actually figure out who is giving it. Is it Jesus or is it John? If you look at your Bible, um, probably the quotation marks will be around um, uh, Revelation twenty two twelve. And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Um, 22.13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then it will unquote. And then the rest isn't um, in red or it's not in quotes. And that means that John is speaking it. Um, and so, you know, one thing to ask here is, does it matter who says it, Jesus or John, if um, at the beginning of Revelation, it says that basically, um, uh, Jesus, um, uh, you know, gave it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So the idea is the whole book is coming to John from Jesus through an angel. So it doesn't really matter who says it, Jesus or John, but I think it's important because it does make clear or clearer potentially. The question of whom the invitation is going to because one imagines that if there's if the dogs outside the city are being invited um uh it would have to be jesus or the angel issuing the invitation one doesn't really see john as having the authority to do that necessarily um although you know maybe and, 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 and conversely, and, and John's never spoken to anyone inside the vision before, you know, but he's always, you know, been bearing this testimony to us, the readers. And so it's natural to assume that if John is the one saying 2214, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city for without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth it maketh a lie. If he's saying that, it's natural to imagine that the audience, the one to whom that those statements are addressed is, is us, is the readers, or is the seven churches, and then later on, you know, us, the, the body of Christ. So, in which case, that goes against the standard universalist interpretation of, you know, Jesus saying that, you know, blessed are those who wash their robes, um, that they may have the right to enter the gates of the city as, as, as if Jesus himself is issuing that invitation to the dogs outside the city. Um, if you're reading on that one dimensional level of the author's intent, I don't see that that's what's going on. Now here, here if you're ready, we're gonna get into even deeper wrinkles, okay? Taller weeds. Um, are there quotation marks in the, in the original Greek manuscript? As far as I can tell, no. I mean, someone is making an inference that some of these words are from Jesus and some are from John. But I think a reason a lot of people get confused here, because um, even David Bentley Hart seems to 
get confused by the ending. He says it sounds like um, uh, the damned are being issued, issued an invitation to come in the gates of the new Jerusalem and wash their robes and, and drink of the waters of, of you know, life. Um, and that was the impression that I got at first, too. But I think the reason why a lot of people get confused is that is that it's kind of random where, um, you know, Revelation 12 through 22, 12 through 22, 13, um, that, that's in quotes. And then 14 through 15, it's not in quotes. And then 16, it is in quotes. It never, it never says he said, oh, and then I said, and then he said, it's not doing that. There's an inference here. Someone's making this inference that, okay, this part Jesus said, but that part John said, that part Jesus said. Who said Jesus didn't say all of it? Is it because some of it is in the first person and we assume Jesus is saying that? Um, and then uh, some of it is in the third person and we assume that's John speaking again? And then when it says, you know, Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel. Well, that's clearly Jesus speaking again, so it's safe to put that in quotes. The point is that every time, if in the Greek, there's no quotation marks, it could be read either way. Yeah. And every time that you as a translator make a decision to translate an ambiguous word with a certain more specific word, or you make a decision to put things in quotation marks, in a sense, you're collapsing a wave function. You are, you are taking something that was ambiguous or you know, able to be read on more levels than one and forcing its interpretation to be on mm -hmm. just one. Mm -hmm. But see, the question is, how, again, do we interpret Revelation? Is this a book solely about the future? Or is it just a preterist book where all the things in it have already been fulfilled? Or what if it's a book which about, what if it's a book about things which were and are and will be mm -hmm. all at once? So, if we're saying the invitation is only spoken by John to his audience, um, it's a kind of limited time offer because it's a kind of trans-temporal invitation. It's like speaking from the future to the audience who exists now and saying, come, you know, in, you know, come from your present into the future into the gates of the new Jerusalem, which will come here. And be sure to have washed your robes so that you will have the right to enter the gates. Is that a valid reading? I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's right to read it as that kind of trans-temporal invitation. Is that the only correct reading? Well, if, if, we're, if, we're, if we're saying Revelation is only future, um, or it's only now or something like that, then it may be, but, but the thing is, it's possible to read it um, also as an invitation which Jesus himself is issuing to the, the damned outside the city gates. You can do that. As far as I can tell, there's nothing stopping you there. As far as I can tell, the decision to put quotation marks or red letters there and kind of collapse that wave function or say, um, you know, this is only John speaking to us. It's not also Jesus speaking to the, the damned outside the city. As far as I can tell, that's a kind of um, editorial or, um, uh, you know, translator decision, which is equivalent to taking an ambiguous word and, and translating it according to only one of its possible meanings and thereby removing 
um, a possibly polysemous um, 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 interpretation from consideration. In other words, some things are true in more ways than one. Some, some things are true on many levels at once. If we're reading Revelation with the idea that it's true on many levels at once, again, it may be a fuller and more amplified reading, truer to the spirit of Christ and of the book itself, um, to read this invitation as, as being issued on multiple levels, multiple time frames in the future to those outside the city by Jesus, um, now um, by John, who is somehow speaking to us from the future. Um, in a vision uh, that he's seen. That's why he's using the present tense outside of the dogs. Um, um, and, um, you know, uh, so this is, this is what I've thought about um, in regard to the book of Revelation and, and um, what sense, if any, um, it may be open to um, the maximal universalist reading um, of Revelation. Uh, which again, as I said before, it seems like the most that the most universalist interpretation which one can possibly take doesn't go all the way to envisioning that triumphal um, uh, vision of God being all in all, as you have in Corinthians. The most you can, the farthest you can seem to get in Revelation is um, uh, the possibility that everyone may turn that you you have the, you have the option of each person to turn and repent because the gates of the new jerusalem are never shut and then you have the hope that they may all at some point turn and repent but that's the most universalist you can get in your interpretation of revelation that's yeah that's a lot <laughs> it always makes me nervous when you mute, mute your mic and then i gotta talk i'm like man oh no it's it, so is, it is a lot well the, the thing is that I think in much greater detail than most people. I'm yeah. always doing flow. I'm always doing flow charts, decision trees, and mm -hmm. I'm going down, you know, different branches. Yeah. And forking paths. Yeah. And what you very, you just, no, sorry. You just say, you say a lot and it's all, it's always very like interconnected, but you just make so many different points where I'm, I'm not sure what to grab onto. I've, Technically, I mean, I, I've always read the, not always, I guess. Yeah, it happened always. But the more I read it, the more I came to the, I think the same viewpoint. It sounds to me like you hold is that it's, it's, it was and is and is to come. That's how the scripture, the text of Revelation is to be read. It's, it's not just a moment in time, but it's all, I don't know. Sorry, you said a lot there. Um, so the message you're talking about that remains open is the one that where they say come, right? The invitation to come is being open to the, it could be spoken to, you said it would be kind of weird if it was spoken to the people inside. I've always read that, that invitation to come there. For some reason, I've never even thought of it to read it that way, but I've always, I've always thought it was speaking to Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Um, oh, yeah, and that's why, right. uh, like at the end, and that of it, makes especially relevant the question of of who is speaking it. Because if Jesus is speaking it, the Spirit and the Bride say, "Come." If Jesus yeah. is saying that, then he's not saying it to himself. If John is saying it, then yeah, he could be saying it to Jesus. Yeah, I, was, I think he's saying it to his audience. Okay, yeah, that, and that makes sense. It. 
Yeah, and that makes if sense Jesus too. Jesus is saying it, then well, he could also be saying it to John's audience. Um, he could also be saying it to the damned outside the city. I don't um, know why I read it that way because it does say like well, at the end it come. says it says um the the, the last verse of Revelation. Uh, the last verses of Revelation are he which testify. I'm sorry, I'm using the King James, by the way. Maybe I should have gotten some more readable translation on no, my that, computer. That, that works um, great for me. But I, that this is the one that I have with me. Um, yeah. Uh, he which testifieth these things, Seth, surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace yeah. of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Yeah. But then, but then in the verse you read, it says, let, let whoever thirst come. So it is saying like, whoever's thirsty, the invitation is My to... King James Bible is saying, John says that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to whoever's thirsty. So presumably yeah. not to Jesus, but it's also saying yeah. John is saying that. I am questioning at this point, and maybe they have very good reasons, maybe determinate reasons to collapse it... the ambiguity that exists in the Greek text, which to my knowledge does not have quotation marks and doesn't say, and then he said, and then I said, and then he said, would it have words like how much is it is it extremely significant who says it there if they I, I think i think it, it matters because if if john is saying it then that dictates that that sort of forces a certain interpretation of to whom that invitation is going mm-hmm. at least i have trouble imagining john issuing that invitation to the damned outside the city is it okay. replaced to invite those who have been cast into the lake of fire into the city to drink of the waters uh, uh to drink of the river of living water it would be very thirsty <laughs> i'm just kidding well they would be thirsty <laughs> but the, the question is whether um yeah, they yeah. have the authority yeah yeah that. now if jesus is saying it then i could imagine the invitation being extended to those outside the city yeah and it's hard to make that call because um I don't know. It's hard to make the call as far as I can tell, because again, the Greek doesn't have quotation marks. Again, as far as I can tell, I can pull up an interlinear translation. Well, I I guess mine. It's just on the internet. I guess what I say it's hard. It's hard to make that call is because after this seems to be after that second judgment, the great white throne judgment seat, where things are, from what I can perceive, different than, uh, or at least somewhat different than they are now. Because if it was happening now. I would almost say John through Christ has the authority to invite the damned into Christ. Cause that's kind of what we're supposed to do now with the gospel is like, you're, we're all damned outside of Christ. So everybody, everybody is and has as from what, from my understanding, Christian, if Christianity right now, everybody living has the, the invitation to Christ. Um, we're supposed to go and spread that gospel. So it seemed like I would want to say that the the word come is to to all who are willing to hear, but then this seems to be at a different um after that, like you said, they're actually in this the what does it say in twenty-one verse eight, they're in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Um yeah, I just I just looked it up by the way. According to apologeticspress.org, in modern times writers often use quotation marks for direct quotes. We must keep in mind, however, that the inspired writers of the inspired writers of scripture did not use quotation marks to identify exactly what various people said, as with all writers of ancient history, quote Bible writers, sort of like uh, 
verse numbers. The thousands of quotation marks added in many modern translations were actually added by translators in hopes of helping Bible students have an easier time understanding the text. So again, they're forcing a certain interpretation mm-hmm. of who is speaking and by extension to whom uh, the words are addressed. Yeah. However, it's kind of a translator decision akin, as I said before, to deciding to translate an ambiguous word um, as a more specific possible meaning and thereby removing the possibility of a more polysemous or multivalent um, interpretation, which arguably can exist mm-hmm. instead of a more specific one. Yeah. Um, but it, it certainly, it's not, it's not, it's not easy at all to understand who exactly is speaking, and who, uh, who exactly is being addressed. Um, even with the, you know, even with the quotation marks and, and the red letters in there, you know, it's still yeah. quite confusing. Yeah. What is this? See, to me, the uh, is the my my first intuition. I guess I haven't. I really haven't spent the, spent as much time thinking about it uh in this depth as you have but to me my first like i guess intuition where they see that word come where they're invited to come and why i would personally think uh that it is extended to the people outside if you're talking to people who are thirsty um is because i wouldn't think that they're necessarily invited to come as not necessarily i guess come that's such a bad way to say it. To come as you are, it's like the invitation to repentance. It's yeah, the yeah, same, yeah, same yeah. invitation. Well, the, the question is: the question is, um, who is really thirsty in this picture? Is it those outside the city, or is it um, John's audience? Now, conceivably both, but one thinks of those outside the city, you know, uh, first. Um, mm-hmm. If you frame the question like that, um, the, the yeah. other thing is is that the tenses. The tenses are present tense. And, and so if he were speaking to his audience, it would be more natural to use the future tense. Because for them, you know, um, these things haven't happened yet, but they will soon. So why not say, you know, the dogs will be outside, but you will have the right to enter the gates. He says, you, blessed are those who wash the ropes so that they shall have the right to enter the gates. Outside are the dogs. It doesn't say outside will be the dogs. That gives the impression that one is speaking to those in the vision for whom these things are a present reality. But not necessarily. It could just be unclear use of tenses. Mm-hmm. It could be from John's perspective. These things are happening now. And so he uses are. Yeah. You know, that's another possibility. Yeah. Hmm. That's why I said it could be a kind of trans-temporal invitation invitation from the future to the past which is the reader's present yeah um, yeah. uh, which extends into the i mean i would think it extends into the future because if the message has just come then it just seems to be just uh it was and is and is to come kind of the same thing like the words just come it's like anytime any place anywhere come but to me i i guess i always just read that as uh if it's if it's the invitation to to me myself or to the dogs outside it's still a a uh it's oh gosh it's the same 
it's the same, it's the same come that Jesus gives in the gospel where he says, uh, where it's this, it's the, the invitation to repentance. It's this, uh, it's always, um, what does he say? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So it's the same invitation as like, it's come and continually, uh, engage in my love. And it's not a, which is a him dying of himself and also you dying of yourself to continually interact with that, I guess. Well, now something just occurred to me and, and a lot of these things you're saying, Jason, I'm just going to have to fully digest it when I listen to the playback. That's just the nature of our conversation. Yeah, that, I, only, I have very limited bandwidth. But yeah, the I'm the same way. Hit, hit, hit me later. Same way you with know, you, truth, too. Truth, truth on the mercy seat. You know what that initially made me think of? Because every time I used to think of the mercy seat, I used to use that to illustrate the anthropomorphic description of God, you know, in, in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, you know, where it's like the implication appears to be that God has a butt. He, he. <laughs> and, then, and then I was thinking, yeah, but it's like, what if, what if, the infant Emmanuel reigns from his mother's lap. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. It's like it's like, well, my. <laughs> um, um, uh, now, with something that occurred to me just now, the particularist, i.e., non-universalist reading of Revelation, seems to assume a simple foreknowledge view of the Book of Life, where, first of all. The point of a book is that it's a selective winnowing of information. Not all the names are in there. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a point of a book. Mm -hmm. Okay. Some names are in, some names are out. Moreover, it also seems to imply some kind of simple foreknowledge where um, God knew exactly who would choose him or exactly whom he would predestine. And so there's a certain number of names that are in that book from before the foundation of the world. And um, you, can't, you can't blot your name out or add it to it without in some way contradicting the idea of God's omniscience, at least on a certain view of omniscience, um, which, which is not open theistic, um, but which again holds to something like, like simple foreknowledge. Um, it seems to me that the universalist interpretation of Revelation requires a more kind of open theist understanding of the book of life where names can be blotted out for which you find references in prior scripture and names can be added in for which you never find any references, none explicit. I interpret the parable of the prodigal son where he says, this my son was dead and now he is alive as an instance of a name being added to the book of life. So, you know, universalists will read Revelation as allowing for that possibility. Um, the spirit and the bride say, come. Uh, let's say John is saying that. Um, or let's just say this is the invitation. Um, Jerzak, I think Jerzak actually interprets this invitation as being issued by Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come. And then it must be to those who are not in the body because those who are in the body of Christ are already the bride. So that's his part of his reasoning for saying it extends to the dogs outside the city. Mm. Now, suppose it is as I choose to interpret it. John is 
issuing the invitation and it's a trans-temporal invitation. Um, the, the church of those who will have joined the church is telling you who have not yet joined the church to get your butt in the church. And actually, theoretically, that are, but see that the weird thing is, if that book of life is deterministic in some sense, then Jerzak's point that, then Jerzak's point that uh, the saved are already in the bride holds. And then it doesn't make sense um, for John to be issuing this invitation to people um, who are already inside the bride and whose names are already in the book of life. Um, unless you're saying, despite the fact that their names are in the book of life, they, they don't know it yet and they need to be told to act in a certain way in order to make that um, possibility come about, even though that it's not a possibility, it's a foreordained fact, which really doesn't make sense. The point being that in order to even view this as some kind of weird trans-temporal invitation from the future to the present, which from the perspective of that future is past, you have to assume that it makes some kind of sense for those who are already in the bride, nonetheless to be inviting the past version of themselves into the bride. But given a sufficiently deterministic understanding of the book of life where nobody's name is really meaningfully added or taken away, that, that, that possibility just doesn't exist. Um, the possibility of reading some kind of weird transtemporal interpretation. So I have to think on that more because that's something that, that just occurred to me. Yeah. And I know that to most people, this like doesn't make any sense at all. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but, but, you know, the thing is, <laughs> um, the thing is, I'm a very strange guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's all I can really say. That's an interesting thought. I never really, that was a new thought for me as well. A while back, I'd never, the past self idea and even things like that had never really occurred to me before of even thinking along those lines. Um, man. Uh, That's weird stuff. Yeah, because I thought, I thought of that. I, that had never occurred to me before. If only Calvin had written a commentary on Revelation, then I could just understand the plain, perspicuous meaning. But alas, he chose not to because <laughs> he didn't think highly enough of it. Really? Apparently. Yeah. Yeah, this. But uh, we, you know, it's only we universalists who throw away books that pose problems for our interpretation of scripture. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. The John's even any of John's writings are always the ones that just give me the they just mess with my head the most. I think just because he always speaks so definitively and just in he almost speaks in like absolutes a lot, which causes me a lot of. Uh, trouble because he'll say one thing and then just almost it sounds like he's contradicting himself the next the next statement in some of his writings but um, maybe we pause the recording briefly yeah 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 I'll be just a minute okay okay all right okay so while i was away i realized the implications of that weird point i made about um uh the book of life 
and whether um, that book should be understood from a pers from a perspective of like predestination or simple foreknowledge, or should it be understood from a more dynamic perspective where one may add their name to the book of life um, in some meaningful sense. And, um, you know, Jerzak said that um, that invitation, the spirit and the bride say, come, is going to the dogs outside the city because those who are in the city um, are already part of the bride. And, and he's sort of seeing Jesus and issuing that interpretation, I think. Um, now, suppose that if you think that, suppose you think John is the one issuing that interpretation, then the one, the people to whom that invitation goes are John's readers slash audience slash the seven churches. And if you think that the book of life is sort of written from this kind of perspective of divine or simple foreknowledge where no one's name can really be added to it, then it doesn't make sense for him to be issuing that invitation because they're already part of the bride. Um, it's kind of why hyper-Calvinists don't preach and don't try to convert. Um, similar, similar logic to that. And so if that, if that is your view of the book of life and of you know, um, predestination and so on, then Jerzak's consideration that he can't, that that invitation can't be going to um, the, the, the listener or the reader, um, that then his point would seemingly apply. And we can't read that invitation as this kind of trans-temporal, again, I'll use that strange word, invitation from the future to the present, which, you know, from the standpoint of that future is past. Um, um, it's an invitation through time, uh, more than like an invitation, like through space. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if we have that view of, 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 um, of the relationship between free will and, and divine uh, sovereignty, then, then we can't take that interpretation and then Jerzak's point that it must be toward the dogs outside the city suddenly sounds a lot more convincing. Now there's a third option for the particularist, which is that they could say that you can add your name to the book of life. In other words, things are dynamic and in play. However, there's a certain time limit to that where past a certain point, you can no longer add your name to the book of life sort of like in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where it seems like there's no more hope for the rich man once he finds himself in that situation. There had been a time when he could have repented, but that time has run out. Yeah. The question is, how strong are the scriptural grounds for supposing that to be the case? Jesus spoke in images and parables. It's not necessarily wise to extract, to extract a strict systematic doctrine from images and parables, many of which are somewhat, you know, loose, imagistic, contradictory, if taken literally. Um, now, there is Hebrews 9.27. It says, it is appointed uh, for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. Um, yeah, the only thing there is, 
even the universalist doesn't deny that you're judged after you die. In some sense, the question is what the verse does not address, namely what happens after the judgment. Um, read a certain way, one could view that as saying that there's no hope of repentance after judgment. But again, that's only a certain, certain reading. I've never viewed that as an especially strong verse um, in terms of um, ruling out the possibility of postmortem repentance. Okay. Now, there is the fact that the early church themselves seem to see a lot of um, purpose and utility in praying for the dead. And the debate for most of the early church, it seems, was not whether postmortem salvation was possible, but it was just over who would avail themselves of the opportunity. So some people were really convinced, you know, like later on, I think in medieval times that, you know, Socrates and Plato were bound to be rescued by Jesus, but pretty much only them. Um, certain virtuous pagans, but, you know, not necessarily anybody else. And, you know, that's First uh, Peter 3.19 is a tricky verse because some interpret, you know, Jesus' proclamation of the good news to the spirits who are in chains and Tartarus as an instance of evangelizing to the dead, unless like a Calvinist, you believe that Jesus is just doing a victory lap around people who um, can do nothing to alter their status and he's simply dunking on them. Or like David Bentley Hart, who interprets that verse um, um, as being about certain angels, certain principalities and powers who are in Tartarus as a kind of holding cell. The verse itself is incredibly confusing and defies almost all attempts at interpretation. Um, uh, I, I, I suppose I ought to read it. Um, just I so can everybody read it right here. You said 18, yeah. right? No, right? first, first Peter 319. Oh, 319. Okay. Um, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, who were, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So, yeah, the, the key verse, by whom the, he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Yeah. So the question is, what on earth does that mean? Yeah. The answer is, we're, we're, we're all totally lost. I, I always, I mean, I've, I've, I've used that one before because I kind of... uh to kind of understand that that means you went to, to preach to the, uh, those who are dead. Um, that's how I've always, I think even heard it too, is that, um, that like I heard it taught is that Jesus, when he died, he went, he descended to hell and there preached the God. Well, I don't know that I've ever, I think a lot of the early church believed that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot of the early church happened to believe as well. And our present day insistence that postmortem, uh, conversion is not possible is more of a kind of evangelical it's more of a feature of our contemporary evangelical Christianity than it is like some perennial or, or um, essential expression of the Christian tradition yeah yeah I mean I, I think he had to have uh, been preaching to the dead uh, before he even died because what he says like uh, Abraham knew him. Abraham rejoices to see his day. So, like Abraham already had seen Christ, had known the gospel. Like the the gospel story was, uh, that's what the 
the world was built upon. Um, so I've always, in when it says spirits in prison, I've always interpreted that as like uh, the ones that are, I guess, uh, kind of in the bondage of death or something like that. Because it talks, in Job, it talks about death being like a prison. Um, what does it say? Uh, Job chapter three. Um, For now I would have, why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Then he like goes on to say, I would have been asleep. I would have been at rest with the kings and the counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves. Um, then it goes down it says, there the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not fear the voice of their oppressor. The small and great are there and the servant is free from his master. So that's, I mean, that's just kind of how I always interpreted it. And kind of like Lazarus, uh, the rich man of Lazarus too, he's kind of in a, there's like a, in death, there's a state of rest or there's a state of like prison or there's torments of Hades well, as well. What, what Jurzak asks in regard to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is he observes, yes, that, you know, there, there is a chasm that Lazarus cannot cross, nor can any, anyone who is minded to um, uh, have compassion on Lazarus cross from the other side. But what Jerzak asks is whether that chasm will still exist on the, on the day of the final judgment, um, on the day of yeah. the second death, when death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah. Well, what, um, is the, what is this chasm? I've never really thought of this before, but like why, uh, if I'm just to speaking... My, to my mind, that chasm exists because Lazarus is not repentant. Yeah. He asks for the, the, the excuse me, Lazarus, the rich man is not repentant. Mm -hmm. He asks that Lazarus come and give him a drop of water to cool his tongue as though Lazarus is still his servant. He's suffering, he's suffering the privation of what he used to worship as a false god, namely his wealth, his power. Yeah. And that's why he's in pain. He's not in pain because he's repenting. Uh -huh. We don't know what happens when when the pain yeah. you experience is the pain of repentance. George MacDonald uh, believed that Christ eventually rescued Jesus, uh, Judas um, from Judas' own suffering in hell um, because Judas' suicide showed his so showed Judas's repentance. Um, so in other words, is it a game changer if you repent and the sorrow that you experience is a function of your repentance? Yeah, quite possibly. I don't know that scripture really speaks well, to that. Well, it's, it's interesting because in the parable, Christ still calls him the rich man. And like you said, if he was repentant, then he wouldn't be the rich man anymore, right? He'd be the poor man. And then there wouldn't be this gulf between them. So the fact that he is still the rich man and uh, how hard is it for the rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven? Cause like you said, it's God that he worships is the, is the, the mammon or something still. And I had never really, that hadn't really occurred to me before until you mentioned that, that he's, his, he still hasn't repented and he still is this rich man. And that's why neither can cross this gulf, this canyon. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 um, you know, there was, Chris Date was debating Kenneth Giles in a sort of an annihilationism versus a universalism debate. And one of the objections that Chris Date made against universalism is that contrary to what um, Corinthians says, um, on universalism, 
death is not the last enemy to be destroyed. First, on universalism, according to Chris Date, first, death is destroyed, and then some other enemy, such as sin, is destroyed after the destruction of death. In other words, if you allow for postmortem repentance, this is in effect what you're saying, and it contradicts First Corinthians. But you know, this raises George McDonald the question of, of what George McDonald meant when he said that there's a very there's a very serious difference between um, thinking that Jesus saved us from the consequences of sin, which are arguably corrective, the corrective punishment of God. Um, there's a difference between that and thinking um, that Jesus saves us from sin itself, which is death itself. Sin and death are the same. It says the wages of sin is death, but you know it's possible to interpret that as the intrinsic consequences of sin. That sin is inherently disappointing, just as agape is inherently eternal and, and never disappointing. Um, and, and so, in other words, Death being destroyed as the last enemy is equivalent to sin being destroyed as the last enemy on a universalist reading. And in response to Chris Date, I would ask, what can it mean that death is destroyed when um, a number of people will eternally remain dead in the sense of not alive, not existing? If there are some who remain eternally annihilated, they are eternally dead, and death holds them forever, and death is, in that instance, not dead. So if somehow everyone were able to live forever, um, uh, but even that wouldn't mean that death was dead, then, then uh, what on earth can death's being dead possibly mean to Chris Date? if he views that verse in Corinthians as compatible with the possibility that some large number of the human race may forever be annihilated or non-existent. You know, that's really what I would ask Chris Date. Would that, if, 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 I know this is a little abstract and hard to follow, but could to that my be, mind... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, could the death being dead mean death being forgotten? Um, I had, possibly. I hadn't thought of that. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> possibly. That, that would mean that forgotten. How thoroughly is it forgotten? If it's forgotten, it means that the, the blessed exist in a state of partial amnesia, having thoroughly forgotten something which is nonetheless true. One doesn't imagine that as part of knowing as one is known. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Embrace the totality of facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Now, to my mind, death being dead means no one is dead. That leaves more room for either eternal conscious torment or universalism. Yeah, I, I don't understand how a how how an annihilation makes sense of that verse. Yeah, because it seems to me death death is dead only in the case where none are dead. If one can imagine death to be dead, even, the case, even in the case where some are held by death seemingly forever, I don't know what one means when one says that death is dead despite annihilationism being the case. I simply don't know what criteria would have to be fulfilled in order for you to say that death was not dead. 
that's that's what I would sort of ask Chris Date by way of reply. Hmm. That's nice. You know, sort of like stuff. Wittgenstein said that that if you don't have wrong, that just means you can't speak about right. Um, there have to be you know exclusion criteria. So. Yeah, you say these things, and I'm like, man, I'm gonna have to chew on these for a while. Like like you said earlier, a lot of times our conversations, that's when I listen back to them where I feel like I'm able to have, yeah, like you've said, digest you, you these have things to, a little you more. You have to always remember that I'm just a very strange alien <laughs> uh, kind, of, kind of person. No, it's incredibly I, useful. And the way you see things and the way you articulate things is very, very helpful um, and very profound. Um, I just, uh, yeah, sometimes you just, you make these statements and I'm just like, man, I, I feel like I'm partially getting it and I just need to chew on it some more. Like the whole thing about death being dead. I'm like, I don't, I have never even thought of it in terms like that before. Well, the thing is Chris date, as far as I can see, interprets things in a very kind of literal or nominalistic way. Yeah. And the reason why, um, I find it, um, I find what he has to say thought-provoking and why I want to respond to him is not that I myself am somehow above this very kind of literal or nominalist way of reading scripture. On the contrary, by nature, I'm, I incline in that direction a great deal as well. And I almost suspect, though, that by descending fully into that tendency to derive precision and and you know and, and do 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 close logic by going all the way into that annihilationism will be annihilated will be revealed as no longer a viable option um that you know that's that's it's but you know i don't i don't claim to have exhaustive knowledge of these things i could be wrong about any number of things which is what i was trying to get out of the conversation with john you know yeah that's i've always for some reason in my mind, I've always, uh, I guess, conceptualized as annihilation as something like oblivion, which I don't know that that necessarily makes sense, even when I read the text, because it talks about a lake of fire. Um, but I guess, well, you know, that, that the annihilationists will say that, yes, sin is thoroughly destroyed and purged from the cosmos, because sinners are destroyed and purged from the cosmos, they aren't allowed to keep sinning in perpetuity in the hell of eternal conscious torment yeah but if if these people um are destroyed as a result of evil being victorious that's only what it is because god desires all to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth yeah it means that 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 evil has won an eternal victory in their case and it represents yeah. the stain or shadow of sin forever remaining on the cosmos on the creation which is a reflection of god's nature in the in the in the last analysis yeah huh what do you this i don't want to this might be derailing it a little bit but i just would i'm curious to know your thoughts on this what what do you think of that the second death that it talks about what do you do you have thoughts on that The second death. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't claim to know okay. what exactly Revelation means by that. 
one can interpret it a number of ways. Death itself being dead, it seems to inaugurate the age of ages, as opposed to just another age of history. If Jesus comes and reigns for a thousand years, um, uh, there's kind of an ambiguity almost in Matthew 25, where he tells, you know, Jesus returns, the Son of Man returns and says to the, what comes, and says to the goats to depart and the sheep to go on to the life of the age while the goats go, go on to the chastening of the age. And then the question is whether that age is some age before the age of ages, something like um, the age of uh, the age where in Revelation Jesus and his followers reign for a thousand years prior to the final defeat of Satan? Or is the life of the age, is it the age of ages, um, which is almost like the end of history? Because the age understood as that millennium where Jesus and his followers reigned for a thousand years is a finite age of history. But the age of ages presumably is the end of history. Um, and is and is eternal in a more robust sense. It seems to me that that um, the age of ages, um, or that the second death, sort of marks the end of history. Um, and um, you know, you might say that that's kind of good grounds for thinking that that um, no one can repent afterward, because in some sense, like changing status. The possibility of changing status is reserved only for, you know, the, the, the fluctuations and the vicissitudes of history. Um, whereas once history is over, maybe that means that, you know, the, the saved and the sinners are sealed forever in their respective categories. Or, you know, you can view the lake of fire sort of as certain early church fathers did, as God's love experienced differently experienced unwillingly but that love has the consequence of what immediately is not even time it's just immediately it burns away the false self and destroys giving you know giving weight to 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 a nihilistic imagery it destroys the false self that one falsely identified with and leaves only um you know the the image of god yeah that does seem to, you know, in that sense, it would seem to contravene human free will. But um, in another sense, not necessarily. If, if what that what that is, if what that it involves is abandoning one to the intrinsic consequences of sin, um, so that one can see it for what it is and repent and turn. Now that again, that all seems to happen in time. Maybe it's just a time out of time. Um, is a sort of timeless time of the near-death experiences that they seem to experience on the other side. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things that these things can mean. Yeah. That's... You know, Matthew 25, the way that I intend to interpret that is, is as referring not to the uh, age to come, whichever exactly that is, namely the age of some millennium or namely the age of ages, but rather as referring to the immediate afterlife. And the age may there be seen as corresponding to the length of time that it takes for a certain false value to break and be revealed as false. Pride is the, the most 
evil false value, uh, the most significant one. And then perhaps it takes the longest time and the most significant suffering in hell in order for that idol to be destroyed and revealed as the false god that it is. Whereas agape is eternal in the sense that it will never break. It will last throughout the age and also throughout the age of ages. Now, I view that as being about the, the, um, the immediate afterlife, Matthew 25. Um, but, you know, it doesn't, if you read the text closely, it doesn't really seem to be about that. It seems to involve physical death and then maybe a sort of soul sleep, you know, until judgment day when the dead are resurrected. Um, but nonetheless, you know, you can sort of interpret it like that if you're minded to think, that an immediate afterlife is uh, a metaphysical possibility and or a metaphysical fact. Like St. Paul said, I'm, you know, this close to Jesus now in, in life. And so it stands to reason that in death, I would be even closer to Jesus. I'd be with him even more. And certainly experiencers of near-death experiences um, do not experience it as a kind of sleep or oblivion, but do instead claim to experience um, a metaphysical reality um, that is that is existing alongside our earthly reality, and that does not require the day of judgment to have arrived in order to be experienceable. It's experienceable now. They can go outside of their body, and be in all different kinds of situations. So yeah, there's many different ways to interpret these things. Um, I don't I don't know the the right you know in, interpretation necessarily. Um, and I think there was another point I was going to make, but I just forgot. So you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter because as the day wears on, you know that my memory becomes less. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I've just never really been sure what to make of that, that uh, description either. And uh, the burning away of the false self, that's something that was more recent to my, my thinking where I, I still haven't necessarily settled on it one way or another yet but I um I hadn't even told with that idea before of even even trying to see myself like you talked about uh, uh my old unrepentant self as being what is what partakes of the second death or what is annihilated if annihilation exists like that is the the portion of me that I look back I can look it back on now I think I tried to do a video about this once where I, cause I was just exploring the idea of like my, my past self, my, what we would say the, 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 me, the part of me that had to die to come into life, the sinner self or whatever is the part that still exists because I can still pull it into the present if I want to. It's like, it's still out there. Like I still, I still know how to be damned if I want to, I can still reject Christ. So that still exists because there's still, that is, there's that version of me. And it's like that version of me is what gets thrown into the, the lake of fire to be consumed right, or right. annihilated or something like that. Right. And, right. Yeah. And I'm not, I hadn't really ever even explored that idea before of that, like kind of this realm of possibilities of me within the scope of free will. It's like this version of myself is finally taken in thrown into this lake of fire then it's life and that's all that's left i guess the true self like you're talking about the the false self is burned up and burned away um but yeah i don't i don't know but then i don't know what they like you like you just mentioned i haven't thought 
thought of annihilation in that way before and what it actually take would take for annihilation to actually be a, a real thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, there's definitely <laughs> a lot of metaphysical kind of mysteries here. Yeah. Yeah, there's a... I don't know. I mean, I mentioned... like, no one knows what revelation means, you know? I mean, some, some people take the part... Um, some people take the fact that it says that, you know, at the... At the you know, at, at the second judgment or after the second judgment, you know, during the second death, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire and are there tormented forever and ever. And then death is thrown into the lake of fire. Um, and and um, along with, you know, all the, you know, damned and so forth. Now, the, the thing is that that's really strange is, um, the thing that strange is, it, it does seem on one level reasonable to infer that if they go to the same place as the beast and the false prophet, that um, they are also tormented day and night for, uh, forever and ever unto the age of ages, just like the beast and the false prophet. Yeah. But the text doesn't say that. Yeah. Um, even though it could easily have said it, I don't know if there's a danger in interpreting where it's there's there's always a danger in interpreting scripture in a way where you say well if it meant this it would have said it uh that's that's always kind of a dodgy move yeah nonetheless it is it is you know just when you think that revelation might offer some clarity or certainty it it, it doesn't it just kind of holds back from um well what's interesting too is like if it if it infers that um annihilation or whatever or even eternal torment um well i don't know well it it kind of brings up the passage you mentioned earlier of the the message come it's like and or even if that message wasn't to them it's still like well they're still outside the city um so if they're thrown into this fire that is the second death how are they still outside the city is that and then is that i i wouldn't personally suggest that to be no, no, I mean, they are, and, just... and, and that's, that's what's kind of confusing about it. Yeah. You know, um, the annihilationists could say that that's just a metaphor. They, they truly don't exist anymore, which, mm. you know, okay, maybe. Still weird to use the present tense of them since they don't exist, and they're, they're so thoroughly annihilated from existence that, you know, like there's not even a memory of them, and yet you say outside are the dogs. It's like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it, no, I mean, I mean, the, it is the fact that revelation is so weird and so unpredictable. Um, yeah, it, it, it does, you know, sort of caution you against overinterpreting it and reading it in this super literalist nominalist way. The reason I do that is in a sense, I shouldn't say give the devil his due, but, but in, in, in order to, um, In order to attempt, you know, the, a sort of evangelical universalist reading of Revelation along the lines of Robert Perry, which, from a certain perspective, is motivated by by a, a high view of Scripture and a desire to take Revelation as much at its face, or you know, as, as much at, at as much at face value as possible. You know, I think that's right to do that. 
and I think it's right for people like Chris State to try and, um, well, I mean, I doubt whether Corinthians and Revelation are are, are, are are interoperable. At least I doubt whether they're obviously interoperable. Nonetheless, I think it's, I think it's, I think one should at least try to see if one can put them together and, and see what sense can be made um, from, you know, results in doing so. I, I, I think that, you know, if you have a high view of scripture, um, you, you probably should, you know, what are you going to learn from it? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm still trying to do that um, myself. Yeah. It's, um, it's, um, it's strange, but I mean, I, I, I would say that probably to me, the, the view of things that makes the most sense is this kind of open and dynamic view. Cause that, that to me has the ability to make sense of unfulfilled prophecy. Um, uh, because there is unfulfilled prophecy in the Bible. I don't just mean future prophecy that awaits fulfillment, but I mean prophecy that said one thing was going to happen and then it didn't. Um, I think one of the major prophets of oh no, it froze up. about the destruction that is sure to be visited on a city, I don't remember. Wait, sorry, can you say um, that one more time? I uh, think that one of the major prophets of the Old Testament gets a pr prediction wrong about a city being falling victim to some other city or ruler he said it would happen and then it doesn't happen yeah um the historical record proves him wrong um jesus said that these these this generation will not pass away until you know these signs which have begun to be fulfilled are fulfilled in their entirety and yet that generation passes away without the end of times having happened um uh, there are near-death experiences that, you know, uh, Jesus tells this guy, you're going to live 45 more years and he lives longer than that. What does it mean? I would say, because I'm crazy, <laughs> that the present future is known to God, but the future, future is not. And to make a prediction about the future is thereby in that very act to change it similar to the uncertainty principle where to observe the phenomenon in question is to change it. Um, and that the nature of reality is that open and that um, unpredictable. Um, which is why I think that, that, you know, the interpretation of revelation that may make the most sense is the one that says it refrains. It, it says that, it says that those who are, cast in the lake of fire forever have the opportunity to to repent um, uh, but it but the book of revelation um they you know the invitation is always open to them the, the gates of the the new jerusalem are, are always open and the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations and let who is thirsty come and, and all that and yet it doesn't say whether they will or not it seems to me that it's it's almost upholding the open theist and of the equation whose other end is the is the divine determinacy or sovereignty or predestinarian um, vision of saint paul and corinthians where he sees everyone being united to god and god being all in all that exists as a kind of transcendent ideal or limit where the stakes of the game where god's end game his goal is not just that everyone should choose him um, but that everyone should freely choose him mm -hmm. 
it's 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 almost impossible when you look at it like this. It's like God is guaranteeing something that is inherently unguaranteeable. Yeah. Um, and but I think that's the right way. Yeah, but it's. I think that's the right way to see it, and like that God's yeah. victory will be so utter and complete that yeah. it will involve every single one of His creatures making the absolutely free, you know, uh, you know, within the limits of of, of freedom. Um, but choice it, with him eternally it has to be that way i would think because like it's it sounds like it's like, like you said it, it sounds it sounds crazy that that he would almost like make that gamble but it's i don't but when you like i just keep going back to it when when truth is on the mercy seat like it, there's no other option it's just like you any god you're striving for any good you're striving for you're gonna have to come to that that falling down on your knees before it repenting and receiving mercy you're going to have to come of begging of mercy of your judge like it's going to have to be the god of israel that you come to because it's like you can anybody that's striving for their highest good there's going to come a point where that's your judge and then you're not he's going to damn you if he's not on the mercy seat he's going to damn you if he's not christ on the cross and so it's like there's there's just i mean i guess there is a like you could choose the opposite, but then that's just the, the un- unforgivable sin. That's unforgiveness. Cause I think you have to come to that point of like, this is, this is how reality exists and everybody's kind of going to come to that. So it's, it's not really a gamble in that sense. It, it seems like it is cause, but it, everybody's going to want, I think it's going to be, everybody's going to, yeah, going to want to choose them of their own free will because you just, you're going to see your God damning you uh it without him so right for david bentley hart it it is very crucially not a gamble yeah again getting back to what he said about if you're willing to um you know in advance in your heart abandon your neighbor to the possibility of his being eternally damned yeah that's incompatible with your loving him as yourself Uh and if god Mm -hmm. is willing even to risk the eternal loss of any of his children that's incompatible with his um you know unconditional love for them as as their creator and 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 heavenly father yeah and so you know for heart crucially what appears to be a gamble is not a gamble yeah um but that's not due to that's not due to his overriding human free will that's due rather to the nature of the good as god and it's due to the true nature of human freedom, which is, um, uh, which consists in you know being removed or liberated from the shackles of ignorance, in order to um, choose what actually most accords with um, one's rational nature, namely the good. And 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 um, you know David Bentley Hart, Hart is there fond of citing, um, I can't remember which verse in John, but it's if the sun um sets you free then you will be free indeed yeah so you know it's it's um it's important stuff um yeah i mean there's more i could say about that but i guess i think i'm, I'm kind of flagging unfortunately <laughs> that's that's okay i feel like i've been lagging the whole time man sorry if i haven't been that helpful i hope we touched on stuff you wanted to touch on though um, I definitely managed to say a lot of things that I wanted to say. That's good. That I haven't said before. So 
that now as far as the things that you said i probably am going to have to wait uh for uh you know like the playback and the reflection in order for it to all land on me um because there's something important here going on with your hermeneutic which we haven't really gotten a chance to discuss yet um namely you know it, it is it is the idea of you know truth being on the mercy seat and and forgiveness and mercy being the actions of love you know um and if what is truly alive um is is always you know being renewed and transformed there's some process whereby that that you know perpetual renewal and transformation occurs and you know something that i was saying in my last conversation with john was i suspect that love itself is the principle that is the it's the principle that enables the infinite to be infinite which is another way of saying that the infinite is actually love rightly understood when it says god is love on some level that's you know it's, it's saying the infinite is love and it's also making a tautological identification there you know our, our jewish friends yosef and jacob will say that to say god is love is to make him merely um you know a finite aspect of created reality mm-hmm. however if love rightly understood is as infinite and mysterious and eternal as god yeah um then it's no more idolatrous to say god is love than it is to say god is infinite in one sense it's still idolatrous where even the concept of infinity is a finite concept but you know is there being understood you know like the buddha said i'm a finger pointing at the moon don't look at the finger look at the moon it's there being understood that what what one in po- what one is pointing at um it i can't say it's unreferenceable um at least not absolutely unreferenceable but there is there is a sense in which it is and isn't mm-hmm. referenceable and that was something else i got into with with john and i don't probably have the the mental wherewithal to <laughs> yeah. re-explain here i think i was just getting to that point in your video too i don't know that i got to cover it yet but yeah yeah i, I understand what you're saying with the uh, uh i i could kind of understand uh yeah jacob and yosef's point too is just like but to me i i i would agree with you it's that it's 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 only reducing god if we're reducing to reducing him to a a finite definition of love or a finite definition of infinity or whatever you want to call it it's like it's we're we're finite beings and we're, we're limited but it's like but to to me those things are eternal like like mercy endures forever mercy is this eternal thing but i think that word mercy in hebrew is like translated loving kindnesses or something so it's very similar to, yeah something like that to where we so i think it's very similar to the same way that christians say god is love because it's it's getting at yeah it's like you're talking about it's the closest thing we have to describing the infinite god in a way yeah well you know what crucial point i was trying to make in my last conversation with john is that whether one speaks of scripture or reality at large the hermeneutic i.e. the selection principle is the same um god is love means in a sense the selection principle is love 
um, you know, God is what or who selects when everything is all said and done. And it, it's saying that the dynamic whereby um, our infinite reality is enabled to be infinite in the way that it is, dynamic and living and always renewed, that dynamic, that hidden Tao is love, which is Christ, um, which is understood with reference to Christ, who as the word of God is not dead and static like the book, but is living as a person. Um, um, and is nearer in nature to that, that spirit, namely the Holy Spirit, by which one would interpret a physical book like the Bible and thereby allow the word to be living and active as it is written, Hebrews 4.16. And similarly, in the, in the scripture, the one verse that, in my view, should reign as the hermeneutic is 1 John 4.16, God is love. Hatheos agape est. David Bentley Hart doesn't like that pronunciation. Hatheos agape esteem, um, if I'm getting the accent marks right. Um, doesn't matter. Um, it says the God is loved, although we should probably translate that as capital G God. But in my mind, saying the God gets at the strangeness um, and the, the, the unfamiliarity, the kind of distance that is, is proper to the living God. Um, uh, you know, somebody said, like, the, the sense of the divine, the sense of God within oneself is, is of, it, it's simultaneously a reflection of one's true self. And also, what does he say? Also, the something stranger. There's a strangeness mm -hmm. about God. Um, I can't remember that quotation now, unfortunately. Maybe I'll find no i don't think i have hope of finding that quotation on google <laughs> i might remember it later but again <laughs> like i said i'm you know probably uh you know, I'm running on impulse power. Yeah, for, that's all right. Star Trek terms. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. Well, if you remember it, leave it in the comment or something. I'll, uh, I can hop off here too, though. I think my dad just sent me some work as well. So probably got to get to that. Um, but I could, I'll send you the audio for sure as soon as we're done with this. And awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. By the way, well, thank too, you so much. I said, I said, I think. I had my days mixed up, but I should probably be free tomorrow as well. Um, and then Wednesday is when I'm driving down to Florida. So, but, okay, awesome, yeah, cool. So, yeah, if you end up being free or something and want to continue it, let me know. Yeah, let's so, play it by ear because my situation is always kind of uh, unpredictable. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks again, Cal. I'll talk. All right. To you thanks soon. so much. All right. Talk, talk to you later. God bless. You too. Have a great day. See ya.